Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray driving on a week when, frankly, it's a little difficult to think about golf. Best wishes to all our American friends and listeners at a time when the truth is it's difficult to make any sense out of almost anything. Under those circumstances, about the only role for golf is to be an escape from the harsh realities and hopefully... That's what today's episode will be for some, as we welcome one of my favourite people in the game, and I'm sure he's become the favourite people of many, for person of many others in recent months. That's kind of you, Rod, to talk about me like that. One club founder, Sandy Jamison, oh. will join us shortly, <laughs> not only to talk about his one club idea, but the state of the game more generally. Sandy will join us in just a moment, not before I've had a chance to direct you to check out our good friends at the Golf Society. Winter officially starts today in Australia, so it's a good time to have a look at what you have in the golf wardrobe. Think about perhaps upgrading for the colder months and upgrading you will be if you shop at thegolfsociety.com.au literally the online home of some of the best golf brands in the business apparel from travis matthew jay Lindeberg, and others shoes from nike adidas and g4 and of course every accessory the discerning golfer could want from belts and beanies to gloves and yes socks they've sold out of one of their socks i had a look on the website this morning it's all right yeah okay i had a small part in that i hope I would go the rush on socks. Go and get yourself uh, loaded up on socks. Special discount on your first order if you're a Talking Golf listener. Just head to thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash Talking Golf. That's the important bit. Don't forget the forward slash and remember just the one G in Talking Golf. Let's get on with things. First up, it's a wintry welcome to my regular co-host and butterer, innerer and bringer of coffee, Adrian Logue. Adrian, looking forward to chatting with Sandy today about a bunch of topics close to both of our hearts, public golf and some of those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I missed out on the previous podcast you did with Sandy, so I'm, I'm looking forward to having a chat with him today. I was on site. You were. You were. That's, uh, it's all right. I didn't feel. And it was, uh, it was good fun stuff. Let's introduce the man himself. Sandy Jamison burst onto the Twitter scene a few months ago. It was a complete unknown to most. But of course, as anyone will know him, won't be surprised. He hasn't remained that way. Sandy's innovative one club concept forms the basis of much of what he tweets about. And it's an idea that's captured the imagination not only of fellow golf industry visionaries, but also lots of non-golfers. Sandy's based at the Oakley Public Golf Facility in Melbourne. He joins us now to chat about life, golf, the universe and everything else. Sandy, welcome. Thanks for taking some time. It's hosing down there, you told me, in Melbourne, so you've got a little bit of a break from the golf. Yeah, mate, I'll be sitting in the golf shop this afternoon typing away, so if anyone wants to bug me on Twitter, I'll be there because <laughs> there won't be any golfers out there. No, well, it's uh, you probably need a bit of a break. It has been, you just tweeted the other day, it has been madness with the number of people playing golf. Oh, look. We did 190 casual golfers yesterday, and plus members, so it'd be over 200 players. And you know, it's two par fours, seven par threes were jam packed from morning to night. I don't think it's been like that for 20 years. Yeah, it sounds like the halcyon days. We're that, yeah, we're seeing that right across the country. Yeah, pre COVID levels, like more than pre COVID levels of play everywhere. Yeah, in pre golf free fall levels. Let's back up a bit. We'll come to some of those things and the reasons for that shortly. Start with those who haven't heard about it, Sandy, One Club Golf. Give us a thumbnail sketch of what One Club Golf is and this journey you've been on. I think we had you on the show back in, was it late last year or early this year? I can't remember anymore. Oh, no, me. I should I should have checked. But, to, uh, uh, to talk about it and that was great and we got a lot of great response to that and great feedback about that interview. Lots of people really were taken with the concept as you sold it. But for those who might have missed it, give us a thumbnail sketch. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes, of course, but fill in those who don't know what One Club Golf is. Oh, look, I found out that Many people think golf is hard, expensive, time-consuming, um, and so I created One Club Golf that sort of makes it easy, fun, and affordable. So it is golf with one club. Uh, the club is uh, 
approximately a four iron loft, nine iron length with the appropriate lie angle. It's got a unisex shaft in it and a putter grip on it. And a circle in the middle of the face to indicate where you're supposed to hit it. So the whole idea is I don't really have to teach anybody anything. Thumbs on top, hands close together, and we're off playing golf. So within 15 minutes you're on the course, and I like to say within an hour you're a good golfer. But truth be known, it's probably quicker than an hour, probably two holes. So we're talking novices here, people who've never held a golf club. They lob up at the Oakley Pro Shop. And what unfolds from there? They, they walk in and say, I've never played golf, I won't have a go. What can you do for me? Yeah, I Well, I first of all, you have to make them dress appropriately, yeah. don't you? <laughs> we'll Sandy, we'll come to that. Sandy's yeah. got some great theories yeah. about dress standards. <laughs> Surely they're not dressed appropriately. <laughs> exactly right. Well, Sandy. I'm sitting here in my one club hoodie, and um, <laughs> I quite often wear jeans to work these days. Um, look, the re- so, Rod, that, yes, they effectively, traditionally, if you want to learn how to play golf, I say we put hurdles in the way. So you would say, oh, I want to learn golf, and you ring your local golf course, and they say, oh, okay, well, it's private lessons that are, you know, really expensive. Or you can go into a five-week course of clinics. Now, who can who can actually put aside five, five weeks in a row at the same time, say on a Saturday morning or whenever it is, to attend the clinics in the first place? So with with me, you just book in. The price is exactly the same whether it's one person or four people. So it costs $100 to do a one-club lesson, which includes your equipment, your me for an hour, your green fees. So that's all you pay. And if that's four people, it works out to $25 each. If it's one person, it's 100 So that doesn't change. I will take you out onto the putting green first up. And I will explain to you that there's four things we're going to do today. We're going to, and it's in this order, the most important things. So number one, we're going to be safe. So I don't want anyone to get hit by a ball or a club. Number two is we're going to learn to play at the appropriate speed. So I explain to them, as long as you play at the right speed, no one will be upset with you and you will fit in. Number three, and no one cares how many shots you have anyway. Number three is what I call your natural level of competence. So, Everyone can hit a ball with a putter. You know that most of them have played mini golf, and if they haven't, they can do it anyway. So if you imagine a, a swing, a, a foot back and a foot through, you can hit the ball pretty much in the right direction without losing it. If that's as much as you can do, that's your natural level of competence, and we can play with that already. And number four is course care. So I get them on the putting green. They hit some balls until they go in the hole. And I surprise them straight up, wait, you're ready to play golf. And I march them down to the first tee. I explain where you've got to be to be safe. And I explain to anyone there who's already a golfer, you are not allowed to give anybody advice. You are not allowed to problem solve for anybody. And this is a huge thing that we can talk about. So I stand up and I demonstrate on the tee. And as a as an existing golfer, the most important thing you can do when you're introducing someone else to golf is hit the ball only at about the level you think they can hit it. Don't stand there and make a, you know, 200-metre, 250-metre swipe at it because somewhere between that little putting swing and a big swing, they will not be competent and then they'll get flustered and then they'll have 100 shots and it'll take them forever. So I'll stand there off the first and hit the ball about 20 metres and then get everyone to hit explain whose shot it is next, and we get in the rhythm of playing golf. And quite naturally, as they go along, they start hitting it further and harder without me telling them anything. If they do hit a poor shot, 
or miss it, the only instruction is have another go. If they do it again, they need to go back to a smaller swing to where they can do it so we keep moving. And that's it. So it's incredibly simple, Adrian, but there's an enormous amount to unpack in what Sandy's doing there psychologically for the novice golfer that most of us as golfers would never give a thought, isn't there? Yeah. I wonder, Sandy, did you happen upon that through trial and error, that that process? And Sandy's I'm- a golf pro, by the way. He's a PGM coach, yeah. Jared Lyle, and a Robert Allenby and a bunch of other pros as well as a bunch yeah. of novices. So for people who didn't realise that, yeah. Yeah. Did you start with like a 20-metre shot with Robert Allen? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually got uh, – it probably goes a bit deeper than that, Adrian. I, I, I didn't – I stopped believing in my job. So my job, for instance, with Robert Allenby or Jared Lyle or any of the other pros that I've worked with is to help them find what they can best do. It, it's not about me. Um, and then when I went back and I was teaching at Commonwealth Golf Club, I, I spent my life working, you know, with, I suppose, four handicappers to 30 handicappers. And most of them wanted a quick fix. They wanted me to give them something. And, or they were living on something they weren't going to get because they weren't going to practice it or they weren't going to play with it. They just wanted a lesson. And I suddenly started thinking, well, am I really making a difference? Am I making a difference to the game of golf? Am I really making a difference to them? And I've quickly figured out you can't teach anybody anything they don't perceive the need to learn. I then found out that the people I was giving traditional beginner clinics to, your five-week jobs, I was giving them stuff they didn't need. And, And so I sort of spoke to a few of them and found out what they really want. They just wanted to play golf. So... The one club idea is a hybrid of a few things. So Pete Cowan gave me the putter grip years ago. I did some work with Pete. We did some lectures together with the late Ramsey McMaster. Um, and the one club idea, in all my clinics and teachings in the past, I explained to people that every club's a different length and every club's a different weight. And we need to be patient with ourselves because golf's a spatial awareness sport. So it's going to take you a whole lot of swings to be able to to be able to make contact with the ball. And it's easier probably if we start with one. And the other part of it was when I was a kid, you could buy one club at a time. Now all the beginners I was teaching, the cheapest way you could get into golf was, you know, between 600 and $1,000 before you knew you liked it. So that's how it evolved, if that makes sense. With everything Sandy says, there's always a million things to unpack. They always sound so That's, simple, but there's a million there's things. A, to there's unpack. a lot in there, isn't there? In uh, in all that. Well, what's I, been the response, it, Sandy? How, how? Sorry, just before you. What's been the response? So when we spoke initially, you'd kind of tinkered around the edges and you had the idea, and you're waiting for the clubs to arrive. But the program wasn't really in full swing then. The whole one club idea. What's been the response from the important people, the novices? That's been massive. So. The, I'm doing all my figures at the moment, and, and let's do it pre-COVID because what's happened post-COVID return, we, we can't I can't take any credit for. But I started October the 1st, um, 2019, and we were shut down on um, the 30th of March, uh, the, the morning of, so two days short of six-month figures. If you compare it to the October the 1st, 2018 to March 31st, 2019, uh, we're 50% up in player numbers at the course and 50% up in money over the till. So the business has grown by 
And I can attribute that to the people I teach to play golf. The number one thing I leave them with. So obviously my lesson price is very, very cheap. So if you if there's four of you in a group, it's $25. It's On a weekend, it's $4.20 more than just paying a green fee. So they want lessons all the time. And I tell them, well, no, you can't have lessons all the time. You need to play three times before you have your next lesson. So all the people I coach return and play and play regularly. Uh, and they're used to playing and they're comfortable playing. That's the big difference. They're, they're all now familiar with playing golf, whereas I think – a lot of people, we in golf, we've built it up that you have to learn it before you can get on the golf course. And so they become normalized with the driving range or the practice fairway. And going out on the golf course becomes a big deal. And that sort of makes them more nervous about uh, entering the game. Whereas within an hour, I've got them understanding their role in the golfing community. Basically, keep up, don't damage anyone, don't hurt anybody. Uh, and... I've, I've told them by the end, congratulations, you're a good golfer. Um, I teach them how to book in and then they're away. So that's the difference. They're, they're golfers. Sandy, you've been uh, at, at big clubs before. I think you've been a general manager of a big exclusive private club and done all of that. You- I haven't been a GM. I've always been a coach. Always, the- All I've done for a living is just coach golf. Yep. You sound to me now like somebody who's found their vocation. Oh, yeah, I've been lost forever. Like when I, you know, I, I, was, I played okay, but I was never going to make a living at it. Um, I thought I wanted to coach high-performing players, and I did. And, you know, I spent time out there with Robert Allen. It was a great experience, and but it didn't make me happy. And then uh, and then I coached at the, high, at the golf club. I, I wasn't happy. And I sort of looked at it and thought, from the time I qualified as a PGA Pro in 1995, my input to the golf industry, I've done okay, I've done well out of it. You know, I've I've built a reputation, I've I've made a living out of it. But in that time, the golf industry's gone backwards. So I've sort of can I've been part of something that's cannibalised the industry. Haven't actually been able to grow the industry, which is, you know, if you want to make a living out of the game, we hate grow the grow the game because. You know, if I was a golfer and not working in the industry, I wouldn't want it to grow. You've never had the opportunities you've had in the past to play the courses you can now play because there's less golfers or more opportunity. But if I want to work in the industry, I have to leave it better than my forefathers and the PGA left it. So I've got to grow the game, and that's what I'm trying to do. So, And I'm, I'm truly happy. I'm truly happy. One of the things you touched upon there is the cost of getting into golf and at what point can you call yourself a golfer? I think it's great that you sort of attach that label to somebody at the end of their round or you even you say they're a good golfer. Um, I've, I've always felt that beginners have this pressure to buy a full set because they feel like they've got to get every advantage. Fear of missing out idea yeah, that yeah. is such a retail weapon, isn't it? it <laughs> In is. all industries, not just golf, but it's a real retail weapon. It is. And, and when the reality is that even a – Person, even somebody who's been playing for ten years, can barely make a make the difference between you know the the ten yards of of difference <laughs> that you're getting between the, between clubs. I love having fun with that, Adrian. So I'll, I'll be going around the golf course and I'll be out there with my family at times playing golf together, or with clients, and we're out there with one club and people look at you 
as you go past them because you're flying around the course and they're struggling. They go, oh, you only got one club. And, you know, this is after I've hit a shot. And, yeah, I said, I'm not good enough for a full set yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it you really, can see, you see the heads ticking over. What's going on there? Well, it really taps into that uh, that thing that Andrew Thompson talked about with us. Very that, primal, isn't it? Yeah, that it is this golf fulfills this primal need. And if there wasn't such a sport as golf, someone would have to invent it because the – the impulse to pick up a stick and hit a rock is is overwhelming. I, I, I love that. I love that attitude. And um, I think you mentioned I, I, that quote to me, did you not? Absolutely. I, I love that episode, and yeah. I um, I, I use that all the time. And, and the other thing is too. So unless you hit a golf club somewhere near the middle of the club face, it doesn't perform like it was designed. So the biggest question you hear new golfers saying to their playing partner is, "Is what club do I hit?" My answer is it doesn't matter. Mm. Like, until you can catch it somewhere near the middle of the face, like a, an eight iron won't perform like an eight iron or a four iron won't perform like a four iron. So like, start with one and when you can do that, we'll give you another one. I must say the only advice my dad, the only instruction my dad gave me in my first probably half a dozen games of golf, I'd go, oh, what one do I hit? You know, he just goes, hit the club you're confident of hitting. Mm. And yeah. that was the only advice he ever gave me, just hit the club you're confident of hitting. And I'd think back, oh, I kind of hit this one in the air before, this one here, and it was, might have been a seven-iron or something. So, <laughs> so I'll, have, I'll have another swing of that. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I probably, Adrian, to answer your question from before a little better, where did the idea come from? It probably just came from how we all learned golf back back in the day. I sound like an old bugger. Because you are. You know, we all I had are. A, I had a five-iron, and that's all I had. Mum and Dad didn't have much money, and I'd go down to the Oval and hit the five-iron. And then eventually get another club and another club, and that's how everyone learned. But now, well, even when I was teaching, when I was first teaching as a trainee, we had a barrel full of clubs that were uncut and ungripped, so just just club heads on shafts, and we would tailor make their first club for them when they came in right there and then, and then when they were ready for another one, give them another one. But you just you you don't do you can't do that anymore. I mean. The cheapest set of golf clubs is Wilson do a set for about six hundred bucks for a full set, and then Callaway and Taylor um, Cleveland are about between eight hundred and eleven hundred dollars. And and you're expecting someone who doesn't know whether they like the game yet to outlay that on top of their lessons, and then once they've outlaid it, to be stuck with decisions and confusion because they've got so many clubs. Yeah, my, my first club was actually a five iron. It was one of these cut down, like just slightly cut down. And the head is so old, it's got the the dots for the scoring lines. Have you still um, got it? Yeah, I've still got it. It's a bit of a family heirloom. And I've tried to, like, I go back to my kids to, you know, play their first game of golf, but they've never really gotten into golf. But I, I bought a cut down club, Adrian, years ago. I, I've been lucky enough to live overseas and travel a lot uh, when I was in. Um, North Berwick, I was in a junk shop and I bought a cut-down hickory-shafted club called a horn and it was just a club that had been cut down for a kid to use and I bought that and that stayed with me as well. Yeah, this has got one of those... Those shafts that have, I think it's got tape around it to make it look like so a hickory. It's a yeah, shaft, a but it, it yeah. looks like timber. Yeah, yeah, and the um, 
Anyway, it's small enough that now that it's sort of my personal security club in the bedroom. So <laughs> I have it I have it near the bed. So in case there's a home invader or something, it's small enough that you can swing it inside a small space. It'll do that, some damage. That, that's BS, mate. I had a nine iron in my <laughs> <Yeah>. bedroom, <laughs> and that I could swing and see myself in the mirror. My wife asked me what was there. I said, "Oh, it's a protection club." Well, <laughs> that's right. Well, that's how I use it as well in front of the mirror. So. Be careful. It's like guns. The most likely victim of that is is going to be yourself. Is the uh, is the is the outcome of that. When you posted that, I remember when we talked, just after the episode came out, quite a few people responded. It was terrific. People enjoyed listening to your story, and there was a bunch of this sort of simple kind of wisdom as part of it. You talked about building your set when you were younger. The response from other people saying, that's right, I remember that was the same for us. We forget a lot of stuff, don't we, in golf? This There's a kind of a retro movement, not just in old golf clubs because they're beautiful, and they are beautiful, but in – Golf attitudes in some way, which I feel like if we can grab onto now, will be to the good of the game in the longer term. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's uh, consumerism and and profit from, from, you know, working in a golf store has probably driven this a lot in that if you go into the – if you're lucky enough to go in the clubhouse at Commonwealth Golf Club, there's a set of golf clubs up on the wall that Eric Routley was given – to play in, I think, the 1959 Eisenhower. Uh, Clates would tell you exactly the date. <laughs> he would tell you what he and, shot, what clubs he hit into the first, second, and third greens. Yeah. Bob Correct. Stevens was captain. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. Jimmy yeah. Caddy. So, <laughs> it was 1959, I'm pretty sure, the Eisenhower, but he used those clubs up until the mid-70s. Oh. The whole set. So, I mean, how many elite players would have one club in their bag that lasted more than four or five years these days, let alone a whole set. So so I think, you know, with the race for better technology has also come the, a greater expense to get into the game that's not really needed yet. And I, I'm i sort of a bit agnostic about the whole um, equipment debate because I don't think pro golf's relevant to to club, to club players. Uh, we'll, we'll come to that in a minute, but there's something interesting about that consumerism. And it's easy to say and to rent, and these big club companies and the manufacturers, they do this and they sell us that. They're not selling us anything we don't want, Adrian. A market requires two sides, a supply and a demand. The demand is there. Now, they're no doubt fueling it and stoking it with marketing and advertising and some of those sorts of things. But we, the golfing public, have the power here, do we not? Mm, Yeah, and we all go this journey as well where – well, we all do. I mean, the typical beginner's journey is to buy this full set of – game improvement clubs, which I think Callaway's top of the line, one of those is like three and a half thousand dollars now. And of course that needs a big bag. And then you've got to, you know, you've got to haul that bag around somewhere. So mm-hmm. people get the automated buggies and, mm-hmm. or they, you know, stick it on the back of a cart Car, and they start driving around. Too and that, to carry. that becomes golf. But then in three years, they think to themselves, I'm not improving here. I, I need a new set. You know, that's these clubs aren't good enough for me anymore. These are these were the beginner clubs I got, right. and I don't, you know, I'm not a complete beginner now. I need a new set, so they outlay another three thousand. You would have watched all of that unfold, Sam. Has that been true of everybody, or have there been people who managed to avoid that along the journey that you've seen? Because that's really none of that stuff's got anything to do with golf, has it? No, look, it hasn't. But and I don't, as I say, I don't. I've got no problem if someone's going to spend three grand on a set of clubs, and, and, and that's great. I mean, I did it when I was at Patterson River um, years ago when big-headed drivers were sort of coming out. I put a, a bit of timber with a hole cut in it that a big-headed driver would just fit in. 
and I put it, you know, if you can wobble your club head around in this, you've given up an advantage to your mates, come and see me. We sold a power drivers. So, you know, we made a living out of selling clubs. And, again, I've got no problem with that. I just think we need to have a simpler way of getting people into the game and the way, you know, I say that my one club golf's a gateway drug. Yeah. It it's, comes at very low expense. And once people get hooked on it, um. Oh, you don't, need to, you don't need to sell them anything, do you, Sandy? They no. come in wanting to buy. That's kind of the whole point. It's a, it's a wrong focus for the starting word. Has it been a gateway drug? Oh, absolutely. So, I haven't. I haven't been. I'm not a retailer. It's not doesn't interest me so much. But I just get them into the one club, and I notice there's a lot of people who come for the one lesson and never come for the follow up lesson, but continue to play. And most of those people within a short period of time, have a little bag and I sell them a little bag and they'll get a putter from somewhere and a drive. They've all got a five $600 driver. I haven't sold it to them and they haven't had their follow-up lesson, but they're playing golf, so I don't care. As long as they're playing golf, and I think, I think, and this is another sort of rabbit hole, the, the deregulation of my job. So when I was a kid, uh, the pro, the club pro, Ran the, ran the pro shop, got a retainer to do so, sold clubs, looked after clubs and gave lessons. But they were very busy doing a lot of things that they didn't – lessons were when people needed a lesson. They weren't pushing them. They didn't have to. But when clubs took over golf shops and contract coaches went in and the only way you make a living is to give a golf lesson – well, then, to make a living, you have to give lots of golf lessons. So you have to say, well, you know, Mr. Mori, I'll see you next week at 3 o'clock. You've got to create a market, don't you, and a demand for lessons. It's, Correct. It's a Whereas necessity. Now, my deal at Oakley, I've gone back to a situation where I make a living if I improve the amount of rounds played there. So unless someone asks me for another golf lesson, I don't I don't feel the need I have to do it to make money. Um, I'll talk to them about their golf and they need help. I'll give them help. But once they're golfing and happy golfing, well, they might be just happy with it. So I, I don't need to go and push my services. It's funny. What happens to us, Adrian? Because we all start as the novice golfer. I would have loved to have started the one club thing. That would be fantastic. But then you quickly turn into something that you don't realise until way down the track when you think about it. You turn into this golfer who carries with you all these attitudes and beliefs about the game, which... Don't help anybody get in. Am I making sense there? Do you know what I'm saying? You, you, you change, don't you, into something different. Golf becomes, once you're part of the club, once you're in golf, it's a different thing to being on the outside. Yeah, no, there's definite evolution and people forget, I think, how intimidating it was for them to start at a golf club. And they're the ones who push through. Mm-hmm. That's right. And what golf loses is all of those who don't push through. That's right. There's not really any intimidation, it seems to me, with what you're doing, Sandy, and that might be the actual key to it. People return. I know lots of people who've tried golf for the first time, maybe gone out with somebody else who's a novice, so there's two of them. Nobody in the pro shop says, have you played before? Do you know anything about the game? They just rent them the set, take the green fees, tell them where the first tee is, and, of course, within – Half an hour, they're holding up the field. There's people yelling at them, people hitting balls over them, and they don't know what they're doing. So they never come back. It's a horrible experience uh, if you go not with a golfer. There's none of that with what you do, and I wonder whether how much of a key is, is it's that. It's a massive key. Mm. It's a massive key. In actual fact, I think worse, and I touched on it earlier, worse is the is the friend who takes – the existing golfer who takes the, the new golfer out to play 
best intentions mm-hmm. and they don't understand. I mean, they, they may be a good goal for themselves, but they don't understand the process that went through. Like you said, they've forgotten what it was like to be a beginner. And rather than how I'm doing it, starting off with what skills they already have and teaching them the important things about how to get around a golf course and be a good golfing citizen, what they do is they get out there and they give advice when things don't live up to the standard that the golfer thinks they should do, mm-hmm. not the non-golfer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they'll stand and demonstrate with the big swing first, as I sort of mentioned earlier, and naturally the the new golfer will try and mimic that, but it's well beyond their capabilities. And as soon as they miss it, they're told to keep your eye on the ball, keep your head still, keep your, <laughs> and all, off to the all, races. <laughs> all is crap. Yeah. Now the golfer's got so much going through their mind, the new golfer thinks, shit, this game's hard. Um, oh, I don't know whether I'll do this, and there's people behind and the rest of it. Whereas there's plenty – there is no hurry to become good at golf. There's no hurry. Oh, it, it just happens. Something out of the while. We're, uh, we're not there yet. Conversely, or, or moving on a bit, I, I, there's something very powerful in you telling people when they leave after that first round that they're a golfer. They're a it, good golfer. Far, absolutely. Far more they're powerful. Keep, they're keeping up. Yep. And they know, they know how to be safe. Yep, absolutely. And that that's probably far more powerful than anybody will give it credit for. I see it here. People come and do my little podcast school or whatever, and but you tell them when they leave, you're now officially a podcaster, and it's like a light goes, oh, things change. They, you know, they, you're going to start telling them they're a good podcaster now. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> eventually. <laughs> but look at it. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So, so the last time you played golf and you played in a group of four, whenever it was, does it matter? Someone who you're not marking the cards. So, Rod, you and I uh, have exchanged cards. Adrian, you're playing with whoever else, and you've exchanged cards. At the end of the round, I don't know how Adrian's gone, but if Adrian's slicing it in the trees and I'm looking for his ball all the time and he's chatting on his phone, that's going to negatively impact my day. But, you know, if he's had his worst score ever but he's he hasn't made a song and dance and he's kept up, I don't know. And that's what I try and tell people. No one really cares about how you go on the golf course score-wise as long as you're keeping up, that you you know when it's your turn and, and, and those little simple interests about golf. That's all that people care about, not how many shots you have. Yeah, they're not judging you at all unless you're standing over the ball for minutes and then hitting it five metres and then standing over an, another minute yeah, and hitting it. But, Adrian, why would you stand over it for minutes before you hit it? Because you've seen someone else do it. No, because you're thinking about all the things you th- you've got a checklist in your head of all the things you think you have to do to golf ball, and that's when you've gone beyond your natural competency far too quickly. So I'll tell people, yeah, have a have a go at a bigger swing, but if it doesn't go well, just go back to your small swing and keep moving. I don't want them standing over the ball thinking. There's something I think you probably see every day, Sandy, which I'm a little bit jealous of, and that is the sight of a kid taking a swipe at the ball, going about 10 metres, and the kid running to hit the next one <laughs> with, with the one club in there, yeah, yeah, just yeah. running forward to hit the next That'd one. wonderful. And yeah. then jumping Absolutely. on top of it and hitting it again, you know that. Absolutely. And the thing about kids, and that's why, you know, it's this whole thing, oh, geez, kids learn so quickly and us adults don't. Well, because, A, the kids don't listen to a word you say. <laughs> they, they just want to have a go. Yeah. And when they hit a bad one, unless someone tells them it's not good, 
they just have another go. Yeah. yeah. Got, they've got nothing and to judge it by just, there. They reset. That, so. That's that attaches the label. Yeah. It's neither good nor bad. It's just a shot. Yeah. And they've got that natural gambler's instinct, yeah. I think, that which golf – I think that's the hook in golf. Yeah, is that maybe. gambler's instinct that it's like this time for yeah. sure, this time for <laughs> sure. Right. And the, kids the hardest just people to give coach. into that. They- the hardest people to coach, Adrian, over the years, um, ad- analytical thinkers, so engineers. Yeah. Um, but the hardest of all, when you're a golf coach and you get an anaesthetist to turn up to your tee. <laughs> Right. They're not only analytical, but they're so risk adverse that, like, they're so scared of making a mistake. Like, I run a mile. If, I, if oh, what do you do? For, I'm an anaesthetist. Oh my god. Uh, yeah. I got to be honest. You're gonna pay double. I'm kind of glad to hear that. <laughs> that's somewhat heartening. Next time, if you have to go to have some surgery, that's nice to know that anaesthetists can't unwrap themselves for the uh, for the purposes of golf. Sandy, I suppose the other element of what you're doing here. I'd be surprised if you could have got this program off the ground at a private golf club. And if you did, it's catering to a very different demographic, which brings us neatly to the role of public golf in the growth of the game. And these two things are inextricably linked, aren't they? What you are there is very much a public facility. There's not a lot of airs and graces. Oakley is no Royal Melbourne. No, thankfully. <laughs> uh, it's only one I, Royal Melbourne. I think that... The, the especially the nine hole public golf courses are a great indicator of the health of the game as a whole and and above it. So when I look at private golf in Melbourne, like I couldn't wait to get to a private golf course when I was a kid because playing a public golf course was a bit like it was yesterday at Oakley. It was a zoo. People everywhere. You're waiting an hour to hit off. If you hit your ball on another fairway, you'd be scared if it was going to be picked up before you got there. We've all been there. but And then you would naturally go into a private club and, and the demand created such. So public golf hasn't been healthy. So when I was re-looking at what I was going to do, I went and revisited all the public courses I played as a kid on the weekends and I found, particularly after lunchtime, you could just walk around and fire a gun. It was like an exclusive club. And I figured, well, that wasn't good for golf. So that's why that's why I've gone back to public golf to make it busy. And and it's working. And I haven't advertised, apart from the free stuff I've been given, like being on your pod and Golf Australia Mag through Karen Harding did an article on me, and that stuff provides help. But that's without advertising. So I think um, – That's only preaching to the converted, Sandy. Novices aren't reading golf magazines or listening to this podcast. I'll give you the tip straight up. Only golfers yeah, but, are. Yeah, but they tell their friends to come. Yes. And that, and I only need one friend. And and if you call it if you call it smart marketing or just luck, the the idea that my lessons are a hundred dollars, whether it's one person or four people. Mm-hmm. If one person wants to learn golf, they'll find three friends, so they're only spending twenty five bucks rather than a hundred. Yeah, I think. I mean, we do have. A lot of members of golf clubs listening who just probably play their golf on Saturday at their home club. Um, but, you know, something I've experienced in the last probably year or so, which I've really enjoyed, is I go around to just to local nine holers around Sydney and really. Uh, Where were you this week? Botany? You've done Marrickville? Went to Botany last week. And, well, we played a one club challenge actually for a couple of holes at Botany, I would say. We, and I, I brought my old set and uh, with the persimmon wood and the. It immediately puts you under no pressure at all That's to score right. well. It's, it's an excuse, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's straight out of the bag. Here's my reason. <laughs> exactly, why. and uh, and I just enjoy holding those clubs and looking at them and stuff. So 
that that was that was good. And then you hit the occasional one flush, and it feels amazing. Um, but then, yeah, the last couple of holes, I suggested, you know, just let's pick a club, boys, and and hit around. I was playing with. Oh, I have to mention Jimmy Emmanuel. Uh, oh, the great names. Jimmy <laughs> it, it is. Fantastic. It is fantastic. Uh, Deputy editor of Deputy Golf editor, Australia Golf magazine. magazine yeah. um, hit uh, the short par four eighth at Botany. Very, it's three forty or something. Jimmy's taken five iron, five iron flushed it down the middle, then hit this beautiful little chippy five iron over a little lake to one foot. Oh, Jimmy <laughs> T- tapped it in for a that, birdie. That's with the one danger club. zone for him. Sadly, Jimmy, <laughs> he'd been better off at ten feet. <laughs> he couldn't miss that one. But that was a lot of fun, and yeah, I've been to to Maryville and uh, you know had a look at Ranwick and Bondi and Woolara, those sort of ones, and it's some of the most fun mm-hmm. afternoons you can have, and you can see people out there having a lot of fun as well. So the question is, will they still be here in twenty or thirty years? This is a problem, isn't it, Sandy? Well, absolutely. So the the first thing that that I would say, getting back to your question, was that at a private club there is definitely going to be a need for a program like One Club Golf in the third-tier private clubs. So what's happening now, it's never been easier, as I alluded to before, to get to become a member at some of the clubs you can only once dream of. Mm-hmm. So that creates a vacuum. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden some of the, you know, if you call them third-tier, I, I don't want to be demeaning because I my favourite club in the world would be Box Hill Golf Club, which, you know, just because I've got history there. And it certainly would be considered third tier. But now it becomes easier to play at some of those courses. So then the, the public course, people have the variety and so on and so on. So, but they have dress regulations and rules and, and so on. So, yes, the public courses are really important. In Melbourne, they closed Elston Wick. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a massive loss. But It's just grown know, over, hasn't it, Sandy? They just let it grow weeds. Is that right? Am I right in thinking that? Correct, but the justification to close it down is a valid one. You can look at the numbers of people playing golf, and as they decrease over the years and years, like Oakley, when you know twenty years ago used to do forty thousand rounds, when I took it over, it was down to seventeen thousand. Wow! So if the council's looking for green space, they can say, "Well, hang on a minute, the golfers don't like this course. No one wants to play there. It's it's you know it's over halved in demand, so we become an easy target. So hopefully now." that, you know, before this COVID thing, I was on track to get it over 25,000 rounds, um, which I think I'll still do because of the influx. But then the councillors can't look at it and say, well, how no one wants it. So all of a sudden there's a spike in interest. The, the community wants it, so we need to keep it. The other thing, we talk about this a lot here as well. That's true and that's important. And you're doing It's fantastic what you're doing at Oakley and the golf industry needs to realise that <clears throat> without Oakley, you don't end up, eventually having Spring Valley, Commonwealth, Royal Melbourne and all those others. Nobody starts the game <laughs> at a first-tier club. I think I'll have a go at this, 3000 for clubs, an entry fee and a bunch of – and then they don't like it. That's just not the way it works, people say. Oh, Rod, Rod, so I'm going to cut you off. That's actually what's happening. Are you joking? And, and it, it, it's, it, it scares me. So I ran a program when I was at Commonwealth, and every Sandbelt club in Melbourne is doing this, where we're introducing the partners of members – to golf uh-huh. we're running um you know free clinics then some cheaper clinics then we get them on the golf course but the problem is and huntingdale golf course who've adopted oakley for help their beginners which will happen when things settle down a bit they've they're smart they've seen the light if i introduce a new golfer to huntingdale golf course 
they get to the second hole and the first hole's a kilometre long almost, it feels like, if you haven't played golf before. The second hole, I mean, look, if you're a murderer and you wanted to dispose of a body, any of the bunkers around the front there, you'd never find them in there. So the beginner golfer thinks, geez, I'm no good at this game. Mm. It's another it's another hurdle. Yeah, I appreciate what you say about that, but that's not growing the game, is it? You're taking the same pool. You know, it's like private golf clubs can't survive on the children of existing members. That's a diminishing pool ultimately. So you've got to go outside that pool for the game to survive at that level. And those golfers are only going to come from uh, from public golf. But leaving that aside, golf itself and that space that we use in the public space, the pressure there, we've hinted at it, golf needs to do something in that space too, does it not? It's not okay to just say to Clovermore, you're wrong, you can't have nine holes of Park Golf Club, that's crazy, the place is busy. Golf needs to contribute to a more positive, cooperative outcome with community, does it not, Sandy? The days of just saying this land is for golf and golf only, if that's the main, if that's the attitude we maintain, golf will disappear, won't it? Absolutely. Well, that was our invention. If you go back to back to the home of golf, I mean, everyone knows that St Andrews is closed. Maybe everyone knows St Andrews is closed on Sundays. You can go there and have a picnic on the fairways if you like. I mean. My kids have clambered in and out of the road hole bunker that many times and built a sandcastle. So I, I like to call them a, a tea party. <laughs> a tea party. Mm. Yep. Adrian's got an idea that's which we'll talk about. Trademark registered. Yep. That, that's no, that's that's good. Good stuff. <laughs> um, or down in London, right near where I used to live, Wimbledon Common has two golf clubs that share the same course. So you've got Wimbledon Common Golf Club and you've got London Scottish. Now that's common land. Every golfer must wear a red shirt so that people using the land can see there's a golfer coming. So golfers and non-golfers at the same time on effectively a golf course. Correct. And, and, you know, this, you know, building fences around courses and sort of making them exclusively golf, I think that's an Australian thing and probably an American thing too. Um, But in the UK, the majority of courses are on common land. Like You can be playing Walton Heath and you stop for a dog walker coming across, and that's an exclusive private club. You know, I, I think that um, that it is up to us to become more inclusive of non-golfers to golf's benefit. So here's an idea for Moor Park. Just say it became inevitable that the public was going to get more access to the golfing area. Just say that was the case. What would happen if on a Sunday after 12 o'clock one of the nine holes, of course, or a section of the golf course became open to the public to use the park like St Andrews and they could use plastic clubs and plastic balls and play the course for nothing? Great idea. Yeah, fantastic. Well, then people are saying, well, this is a golf course and this is hitting a ball. It's not like the, the real game, but it's an exposure to golf. And then the game's going to grow because of people having an exposure. I must admit, I feel like golf's the the timer is is ticking for mm-hmm. golf, and very much it needs to actually. We, we should actually welcome these intrusions into golf, absolutely, because it makes you think up better solutions. And it's happened. Look at bowling clubs. It, mm-hmm. It's happened to bowling in Australia where they had declining membership. When, when you put something under stress, 
people come up with inventive ideas to, to make it survive. And bowling clubs, many bowling clubs didn't survive, but but some bowling clubs actually became more sort of community-focused and have that sort of dining-on-the-lawn mm-hmm. type of concept yep. where they're, they're using a lot more of their space and families can come in and have good meals. The The standard of food and bowling clubs went up considerably and those those clubs that have adapted have survived. That's a concept that that dining on the lawn type of thing. Mm-hmm. This is something I must credit Michael Green from Aussie Golfer with this because he, he, he's got this idea for Botany Golf Club that you could turn that clubhouse into something which is much more sprawling sort of mm-hmm. out into the course uh-huh. and and have outdoor tables and, and make it much more of a family setting rather than sort of this brick building with a Chinese restaurant upstairs. I mean, keep that, but because it's quite a popular China, it was quite a popular Chinese restaurant, but but have this concept of going out onto the course a little bit more, the course bleeding into the dining area, and uh, and then you know golf will be this thing that people see and are curious about, and uh, that that club wouldn't be under threat if they had that sort of a community is it is facility it still under threat? It's, I suppose it probably well, the clubhouse is closed <coughs> down, and oh, well, the lease is coming up independent on, of COVID. Yeah. Oh, right. The, the okay. clubhouse is closed. That. No operations in the clubhouse, yeah. and the golf course lease runs out in October, and will be up for review. That's that's madness, isn't it? And that's an interesting that's a, piece of land of too. It is. It's, it's, a, it's all sand based. It serves. A, it's actually pretty spacious nine holes too. It doesn't look it on the map. We might come back to some of the inventive ideas later because that's some of the positive stuff. Isn't the reality, Sandy, that if golf doesn't get on board and start coming up with some of its own solutions, no matter how hard we yell and scream? they will be forced upon golf at some point, and that's the worst of all possible outcomes. Absolutely. We live in a democracy. So if the majority of people don't want golf, it won't be here Mm -hmm. in certain areas. I mean, it'll always exist. It'll just be further away. More private. It'll become the game that it was in the the early years in in Scotland and England where it was very much for the mega wealthy. I think think one of the things that, um, that I forget and regular golfers forget. So I've been on a golf course my whole life, apart from a few times where I, where I, was, where I forgot my roots and stood on a driving range and, and slowly died for a few years. But, <laughs> Inside. Um, yeah. But within two holes of taking a new golfer out onto the golf course, within two holes, every single adult, kids don't because they see the ball hit ball, Every single adult goes, geez, it's beautiful out here. Mm-hmm. And I've forgotten what a lovely place golf is. So just the opportunity of having people walk around a golf course makes them want to play golf, even if, they don't, even if they're not that keen on the game. And I think you would find at many golf clubs there's different reasons for people wanting to play golf. And for a lot of people, it's just the environment of being on a golf course. It's staggering the number of people when you ask them why they play, Sandy. And I did a little experiment with this a couple of years ago. Just asking various people at the club when I play, you know, what's it about? Why do you play? And the number of people who sort of sort of shrugged and didn't really have an answer for a lot of people, it's a way to get out of the house. There must be something more to it than that because there's a million other things you could be doing, but they don't really have a handle on the reason. But I think it's a combination of all the things that you're talking about, and of course, every now and then they hit one out of the middle, which is the actual appeal of golf universally from Tiger Woods on down. All of us are hooked on it because we've hit one out of the middle and we want to do it again. So look, I'll, I'll, I'll forget a heap of stuff that that I, that I could have taught, told you about this in this pod. No doubt it'll come out over the years that we know each other. But 
one of the things I explain to every golfer on the course somewhere around the third hole is I explain the magic of golf that is smash factor, which is when you hit the ball in the middle of the club face, like on the club I've got, you get something for nothing. So if the club's traveling at 10 kilometers an hour, the ball's going to come out at 13 kilometers an hour. And, you know, with a driver, the smash factor is 1.5. So, you know, go to 100, it's coming out at 150. So that is the thing that every golfer, when they hit it in the middle of the face, and the funny thing for me is, and for them, they generally do it when they're really close to the green, not trying to hit it hard and go sailing over the other side of the green. And I celebrate with them and I say, hey, you just hit it in the middle of the face. That's what it's all about. And the smile on their face and they just want to do it again and again and again. And that gets forgotten in the business of golf. The business of golf focuses on a whole bunch of other stuff. But that one very simple concept, and it's universal, and it's difficult to articulate what that actually is, but every golfer knows what it is because it's the one thing that's made that keeps all of us going and going. I I still remember the first one I hit flush. Yeah. Well, even on a game-improving club, Adrian, there's there's only one sweet spot. That's right. It's physics, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's physics. Like, I mean, it's simple. There's one center of gravity on, on the club. So, you know, eventually yeah, it might make your miss hits go better, but we still crave that flush shot yeah. and we always will. And, and know and, the difference. You can, you, you can never have it where you don't know the difference. That's And if you did, that, that it's it's been minimal, minimalized a little bit. You know, it's less obvious. A blade club on a cold morning gave a lot of feedback about offset of hits and onset of hits. It's less so these days, but you still can't hide it. The, the one that comes out of the middle feels different. As, as a good bit. golfer, Sandy, does it get boring wearing that little spot in the middle of the club face? Big, you know, I feel sorry for pro golfers that. There's nothing to look forward to, is there, with no. a pro golfer? Well, that, <laughs> Just that was a while ago all the time. for me. But I, I actually found, find now, if people who, who see anything I do on Twitter, I found my original set of clubs for 40 bucks, mm-hmm. which is a set of Pro Sim and V2s. It uh, turns out you had the same ones, Rod. I think, so, everybody, I think everybody had the same ones at one point. Didn't they? Pro Sim and were the golf club in Australia for a, probably best part of two decades there that I can recall, 80s and 90s. And so I found them, and I'd stopped playing golf, really. Like those who knew me at Commonwealth, I very rarely played golf. And probably because I wasn't a natural talent at golf I, I worked very hard to be at the level i got to and that sort of went a little bit and i still hit good shots but if i go out with a full set of clubs i'm expecting and trying to make a perfect swing all the time because you know i always get a good lie and and when i don't make a perfect swing i, I sort of was getting down on myself whereas at least when i go out with my one club I'm continually sort of in a right brain thing trying to create shots. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter so much. Mm. And when I go back to my old clubs and the old persimmons that I've been doing up and my, my old V2s and have a hit of them, it's, it's just fun. Fun. There's the F word that golf needs more of. We've got plenty of the other, but we need some more of the uh... – and I don't score, yes. ever. No scorecards for me. Oh, don't. Do not open that can of worms. I don't <laughs> have the time. I do it every couple of months in a column because, let's be honest, you write a column every week sometimes. You get thin on ideas. Anything that starts with that old chestnut is fantastic column fodder and the don't keep score is fantastic column fodder. No. It's just guaranteed abuse <laughs> from but, the bulk of the population. Right, I've just got it, one thing to say yeah. about that is I, on Saturday I turned up to my club for the 
Saturday comp, and I actually asked the pro, does anybody turn up and just like play in the play, competition field, but not, but not, but, score. But not, just not in the competition? And, well, not even that. Just, oh, right. Not, not even be in the comp. Yeah, not even be in the comp. And uh, the sort of response was, oh, I think there's a moral obligation to be in the comp. <laughs> Some clubs won't allow you to play unless you're in the comp. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've considered saying, because I, I wasn't really keen on playing in the comp that day, but I wanted a game of golf and because uh, I was just so miserable after a bad score the week before. And I thought, why am I miserable playing golf? It's ridiculous. It's madness. It's costing yeah. me a fortune. I've had a look at what it cost me for the membership, what <laughs> it cost me for the round. And I had no confidence I was going to play any better that uh-huh. On Saturday, so I, I was wondering whether I could. There's play. a lot in that too. You're yeah. tying your level of enjoyment exactly. to the way you play. Exactly. So I wanted to break that. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, I, I could have played. I could have paid the comp fee, but not in the comp, and that would have relieved. That yeah, would have, been have appeased them. Yeah. But. but it's like it's funny. Like the stint that I did living in the UK and the time I spent in America. When the UK, the club that I was at there, they only played twelve times a year for their handicap. So it was the medal day. And aside from that, they just go out and play a match amongst themselves. A bet amongst themselves. And let's be honest, yeah, that's, that's cool. I always enjoy Wednesday golf more than Saturday golf in a lot of ways because it's a much more relaxed and casual thing where I'm a member. And generally speaking, it's some sort of two-ball bet on the first tee and you play for a bowl of chips. Low stakes, but much higher than the financial value of them. Mm-hmm. That's, they're the best times on the golf course. When you come to the last and someone makes a putt to win or lose the chips, It's the, that's what you really remember. Not not – Monthly medal that you Especially want. Especially in a, see, a lot of clubs, mm. a lot of clubs have built that comp fee into their fee structure or their financial structure these days. So, mm. you know, that might be three thousand dollars to be a member of a private club, but it might be ten dollars to go on the ball comp. Yeah, it's like and, a tax, really, isn't it? A levy. Yeah, well, it is. It is in that ball comp because the club took over the pro shop. Uh, that ten dollars, you know, if they if they raise a thousand dollars in comp fees for the day, that money's handed out in in. You know, like on, on your house account over the members, you know, retail. And that, they're making money out of the retail of that as well. So it's part of their financial structure. So that there's always that push to play in the comp. Yeah, well, that's all fair enough. Clubs have got to get by and, and that's a good innovative way to go about it. But, yeah, that, that, let's not pretend that it's not a reality. Let's move on to some of the interesting ideas. Adrian's got an idea which I reckon you might be able to do at Oakley. He's talked about it on the pod before. I don't know whether you've heard this, Sandy, but t- tell Sandy about the tea party idea. Tea party. that. On golf courses, golf courses are, are kind of dangerous places for non-golfers. They don't know where to, to stand. They don't know where they can walk. And and I've observed that a lot of golfers actually think the general public's being malicious when they're walking along the middle of the fairway. <laughs> That's right. When it's actually, I, I think you never assume, you just always assume they just like don't understand golf. And uh, there's a naivety to them just sort of wandering around like that. I feel like what are the safe areas on a golf course? It's usually around the back of a tee mm-hmm. is extremely safe. Tees are usually in a spot where balls aren't landing mm-hmm. and they're usually flat. And around the back of the tee, there's a bit of shade. Mm-hmm. And and there's even some coarse furniture there at a lot of places, like a bench or something like that. So I feel like the back of tees are a great picnic spot. And to combine that with uh, golfers coming through, that that's an actual that elevates it above any picnic spot it's in entertainment isn't anywhere. it like you've got a little bit of entertainment coming through and and someone to chat to every now and then as long as the golfers are on board with it so golfers are coming through i can assure you it's not going to disturb your golf at all like just having a family there having a picnic it's not going to disturb your golf at all 
And, and if it does, get over yourself. If it does, get over yourself and just have a chat to them and ask them and you might even convert them into golfers at some point. But it's an extremely safe place to have a yeah. picnic and the kids can run around a little bit within reason and, uh, you know, they, they have a little tea party. What do you reckon, Sandy? Is there something in that? Oh, mate, I've seen it already. Like it's a When I first started Oakley and no one was playing golf on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, I'd come back after giving a lesson. There's people sunbaking on the first tee, <laughs> um, and I, I, I laugh. If anyone, it's a it's a very old cult sort of film. If anyone's ever seen the film Bad Boy Bubby, yes, um, I'm not going to use the language when he tells the policeman <laughs> to get off the road, but that's pretty much what happens when someone wanders out onto the golf course. It it's, a, it's kind of, um, but no, Adrian, I have heard you use that idea before, and I do love it. I think the golf courses have certainly got. Um, got space space for that my little course you could do it on the first tee and that would be about the only spot that's safe to do it because there are some balls whizzing around everywhere else but you'd have to have designated tees we can formalize that now at moore park think about this there's no reason you couldn't formalize that Mm -hmm. and ultimately if it's popular you could charge for it there's no reason you couldn't have and i'm trying to go through moore park in my mind it's been a while let's say you could use all 18 tees you can book them all on a you can book them yep book book people in you ferry them out to the tee in a golf cart. They can set up their blanket there and away they go. And there's, there's no reason why that couldn't be. And that's a perfect example of sharing the golf course without it being an issue. Let's wait for the emails I, and the Twitter response to I'd all the reasons why it won't yeah. work. Part of part of my thinking in this is that golf courses are just a nice place to they be. They are. And why don't we let people come and see that they're I, nice places Exactly. I, I've, I've experienced this photographing golf a little bit where you're just sort of wandering around the course all day and not at a tournament, just at a like local course. You're wandering around the course all day and then you think to yourself, I'll just take a break and sit yeah, next sit to here. this tree. Yeah. And it's lovely. Yeah. Like, and, and everyone should get to experience that. The golfers should get to experience that, uh, That's exactly right. We <laughs> spend far too much time looking down, don't we? Sandy, I think you were about to say something there and Adrian cut you off because he's rude. No, he's so enthused no, about his idea. <laughs> I was, I was going to say it's a bit like um, my wife's from a big water skiing family and we have a boat and um, – there's always people hanging around the boat ramp waiting for accidents. So they'll set up picnics watching everyone launching boats. It's um, it's quite amusing. So we could sell it the same way. We're waiting for the golfer, the golfer to hit a bad shot, or even better if they lose their temper and totally um, totally forget themselves. It's quite funny. It's kind of, you're absolutely right. And in fact, there are a lot of golfers. My mum used to go to lunch quite often at Asquith Golf Club, just up the road from where we live there near, near Hornsby, and you public were welcome to go in there for lunch. And they'd always try to get a window seat, her and her friends, because mm-hmm. you would see that. And she was exactly like what you're describing, Sandy, waiting for the bad shots mm. to see yeah. the tantrums of the players. That was the real entertainment, blokes throwing clubs and losing their uh, losing their stuff. And then the occasional good shot, of course. I think it was a par three there. You can see, you know, you'd see the odd hole in one or one that finished a foot from the hole. And even as a non-golfer, you can appreciate that that's entertaining. So I actually think the more I've thought about it, the more merit your idea's got. How about this one, Sandy? At Mangrove Mountain, where I'm a member, the – what hole is it? Ninth hole? Ninth, 18th, and it's the – It's laid out basically like the old course, isn't it, with the out and back and <laughs> – Not quite. There's, there's two holes that run next to each other just near the clubhouse. Anyway, the point being, there's a natural little amphitheatre. I've had this idea a couple of times. Just by sheer luck, because there's a construction site going on behind there, there's a sort of a temporary road runs behind the tee where you could easily park a large semi-trailer with a great big screen and have yourself an outdoor movie night. Mm. You could also do this at the Hilltop course down at Mollymook. I was there not long ago looking at that. Uh, and you could open up the bar 
and you could sell food and drinks and people could sit on the grass, have their picnic and watch movies on a screen on the back of a big truck. Now, that's a pretty involved. <laughs> I don't know whether there is such a thing as a truck that drives around with a mobile drive through movie. But that sort of thinking, Sandy, really changes things. If you allowed 150, 200 people to come in and sit on the 18th fair at the golf club and look up at a screen, and that's going to change their opinion of the golf club, which is where this all needs to start, isn't it? Non-golfers' image of golf needs to change. Oh, look, I, I think uh, my wife, as I said, water skiing family, they're from um, Yarrawonga, my whaler, on the border there. And the Yarrawonga Golf Club's got 45-hole golf complex. Mm-hmm. And I've said to my friends up there a lot, there, there's clubs up there like like your leagues clubs and what have you built around poker machines, but they're all struggling these days, of course. The ski club tends to get most people there in summer because it's on the side of the water and they have the bands. And I said, well, why wouldn't you have a driving range at night time pegging it down the 18th hole of the, of the lake course right next to the clubhouse? And make it like you make it. Well, it doesn't even just be like Top Golf. It's just mats, lights, bar, music. Yep. Hit hit golf balls. Yep. And, and use that space at a different time. Yeah, it means someone having to pick the balls up early in the morning. But that's you know neither here nor there. Needs a catchy name, Sandy, like Tea Party. Yeah. <laughs> a Tea yeah. Party. What's mine um, going to be called? I don't. It's got no hope. But unless you've got Fairway a name. Film. Unless, oh, <laughs> there you no. go. Okay, well, that's all right. That's right. Okay. You've got, you got yeah. the start of something there. I mean, yeah, using, using the space because that's the thing. Golf course are the biggest assets, their land they're on, and it's using it. Nighttime's the perfect thing, right? I, I, I totally yeah, agree. Yeah, and that, and that evening into night and kids can run around and there's a bunker for them to play in and it's got to be raked the next day. Well, so what? <laughs> it's going to be raked anyway, most well, likely. So Well, even, even rule changes. So at the moment during this COVID thing, there's no rakes in bunkers. Yeah, that might stay at a few places, you know. Well, and do you know what? Like people say, what have been the, I said, mate, just take a preferred lie in the bunker, mm. leave it in the bunker, smooth some sand out, and off you go. I mean, everyone's always bitching about bad lies in the bunker. Um, I'm probably the view of a lot of people where I think, well, that's your penalty. But, you know, if it reaches a stage where everyone gets to get a perfect lie because they can smooth it out with their foot, well, so be it. Yeah, who cares? Give them what they want. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> As Clates will tell you any time you ask him, Sandy, with the grip that most players wander around with, they're not getting out of the bunker no matter how good the lie, so it really doesn't make any difference. Oh, it genuinely it, speeds up play. Yeah, of course it does. Mm. Of course oh, it does. And and look, I, I think, you know, it's like in my one-club game, in about the fourth lesson I teach you how to score, if you want to score. But my rules if that some people might see on um, socials that I have a course record, it's a – Total rip off of top oh, gear, to be fair. Controversy. It's, <laughs> it's a, it's a uh, you know, it's basically a star with a reasonably priced club having a lap of the course. But the rules are simple. If you lose a ball, there is no penalty. Just drop another one near where it was and play on. The penalty is you've lost a ball. It costs you two bucks or whatever. And we play the Patrick Reed rules. You know, you improve your life if you don't like it. So <laughs> it's um, have fun. <laughs> Patrick, you've made it. Yeah. You thought you were going to be remembered for the Masters, my yeah. friend, but you're, you're- That is a good point, though. Like, the number of times you see a beginner try and hit it off an awful lie, yeah. and you think to yourself, that's that's a pretty smelly lie there. <laughs> I don't know if I could get it out of that. A, a great mate of mine, Andrew Long, came for a hit. He's a golf pro as well. Great name at, for a golf pro. It is. It is a good name. And um, he, we were playing, and on the eighth hole, I tried to hit this cut into the green, and I overcut it into the creek. And I've gone, that's all right. We're playing for something. That's all right. 
there's no penalty for losing a ball in my game, and he carried on. How did that go down? No, not well. Didn't go down well at all. So I dropped one down next to the creek and played my second onto the green and hold it for three. Made a par after losing it in the water. I felt pretty good, and he was bitching and moaning. Then he hooks one out of bounds on the next, and I said, "Well, there's no penalty for that." And he's gone, "Oh, yeah, I like that rule." It's it's that whole thing as golfers, we fear that, you know, not only we lost a ball, but we've got to add a shot. Add I mean, that's yeah. later on, yes, later on, yes. But when you're starting the game now, pass. Uh, there's room in the game for a set of social rules, which could be used at club level on everything but monthly medal day, which would make a whole lot more sense for recreational golf. Let's be completely honest. Uh, yeah. And look, no rakes in the bunkers. The other great thing it does is it's a real disincentive to go in there. People actually start thinking, oh, don't want to hit it in there, especially with your one club, Sandy. It's got the loft of a four iron. It's not the easiest thing to get out of the sand. I had a couple of bunker shots the day we played there, and it's not as it's not that straightforward to get a four iron out of the sand. I give people, in when I actually start scoring, if you go in a bunker, you can get a free drop, but it's a line of sight drop. So what that does, obviously the bunker's still in their way. You see, without me telling them, they start to strategize about where to hit it so as not to go in the bunker. And, and, you know, it's that ground game that you know, we all love so much. But you see them starting to get angles and those things without me telling about it. Yeah. Do you adopt Hogan's scoring method as well, Sandy, with where putts are only half a shot? <laughs> no, because I'm a good putter. So uh, I, I, uh, my, any, anything I did, you know, in my days where I was trying to play was all on the back of my putter. So I think um, – Putt should be like one and a half shots then. It's a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming from a bloke who's, who's just been experimenting with the claw, Sandy. So yeah. that tells you everything you need to know about Adrian and how he feels about putting. What's the future of one club golf? Will I be able to play it up here in Sydney at some point? What are you going to do with it? I mean, you've proved that it's effective, it can work, that there's interest in it. That doesn't guarantee that it'll be a success or a global success, but it's a fantastic start. When we spoke last, you weren't sure how it was going to go and that you were quite confident that it would – find the mark. It seems to have hit a nerve. What are your sort of plans for it? You mentioned Huntingdale's involvement. Tell us what that's about as well. Oh, so Huntingdale have basically realised that um, the stress on their practice facilities and golf courses by the members who are paying the top dollar um, is such that having beginner programs and so on on the, on the main facilities takes away from that. And as we're only really maybe a kilometre away, then them running their programs at Oakley makes perfect sense. And and it's obviously easier for a beginner golfer, so that's that's big. But against my better judgment, well, it's not really my better judgment. I'll tell you where I'm at with my one club. So my, my one club, I know it works, and there's a lot of interest for it. But I need people who are going to do one club to realise the value of what they're creating. So... For me, when I create a golfer, I create a trailing income for myself at the golf course I'm at. And I deserve that because I've created the golfer and the place is more prosperous. So for any golf person who's going to run a one-club program, there needs to be some benefit to them for when it works and they create a, me- a member. So, for instance, at your mangrove mountain, I'm still trying to figure out how mangroves grow on a mountain. I thought they'd be in a swamp. But... Um, If someone ran a program and created five new members for Mangrove Mountain, the golf pro there, and for those for that program out of it, they made two hundred dollars a person in in tuition fees. 
So if they did that and then the person joins your club and they don't have a lesson ever again, well, the club and that person stays a member for 20 years. The club's got a trailing income out of it mm-hmm. and the golf pro's got to go and find the new customer. Mm-hmm. I think there needs to be an incentive for people who want to run programs to be able to end up with a secure living out of it. And that's where I'm heading. I'm trying to figure out models in which to do that. So I imagine you've had lots of people sniffing around. Any golf idea that's generated the sort of interest from non-golfers that yours has is immediately going to attract a bunch of people in golf with all sorts of great ideas about how they can make a killing out of it. Yes, correct. And and really someone some I mean look I'm doing well out of it now. I say, I say well I'm not I'm not greedy. I'm not money's not my god, but one jet's I'm, enough for anybody, Sandy. You don't <laughs> well, need to. Yeah, I'll just borrow someone else's. What is it? the best? The best thing is jump in someone else's. I think, but I, I mean, I deserve and PGA members deserve to be compensated for what they do, and that's been taken away a lot. And I think that um, the worm is going to turn because everyone talks grow the game, grow the game, but what they're really saying is we want someone to teach the game. But you, when you've got pros going in at, at facilities paying thirty percent of their of their coaching fee and commissions to the facility on the basis of creating more customers, uh, it doesn't make sense to me. And what I've shown at Oakley is that I've I've made a living there. Um, the management at Oakley's made more money than they were making beforehand. Everyone's happy, mm. and I, I think that's what I want this to do. I want this one club to to make facilities more prosperous, but also the people who run the program deserve a chance to make a living out of it, um, not just every time they give a golf lesson because that's that's um, that's stressful. It, it seems to me, Adrian, we talk about bloat in the game a lot, and what Sandy's done here is really strip away a whole bunch of the bloat, and lo and behold, what we found is something that's actually quite appealing. Yeah, and I, I think just thinking back to Sandy's description of the whole process – the most valuable part of it to me is that hour that Sandy gives the people and the the instruction that he gives in that hour and, and his attitude with the lack of ego that he brings to it as well. And finding the right like – one club's really just a vehicle for, for, for pe- that, for, those, for people, for, for people, people to, the key. to do that process, I feel. And uh, I think it would be great if, if you can find more clubs to do it, to adopt that system because – uh, you, you critics, your your business investors, so so called, would criticise that piece of of the puzzle yep. because it doesn't scale. That's that, right. That would be the mm-hmm. the horrible thing they'd say about it. It doesn't scale. Oh, but, but it does. But because... yeah, stuff that like it, it absolutely <laughs> like it, it. Not traditionally, but it does scale. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that it, that one hour investment is like you said. It's a lifetime of repayment or trailing payment from some of those golfers. So. And you actually do need coaching skills to do it. And, you know, you're right, the club is the tool. My knowledge and the program that I've written um, is the real part about it. And I say to every single person out there, listen, I've been coaching golf for 25 years. I'm not going to say very much today. But if I don't say it, you don't need to know it. So the real, the real magic of a good golf coach is knowing when not to say anything. So people will come up with a question, oh, what about this? You don't need to know it. Just stick to the stick to what we've done. Get that part right and then you can come back. Yep. 
but you've got to play more. The more you play, the better you get. Yep, and we've got tea times right here at Oakley. You can come up to the tea sheet now and book some if you like. So, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's all absolutely. Well, those things that you see on my socials when you'll see a picture of the time it's taken to play the second hole. Have you seen that, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. three minutes fifty nine was it for four of them? Novices? Yeah, that was the other day. Yeah, so it's only a hundred meter hole, but I, I get to the second tee and I say, "Hey, listen, we're going to do something really important on this hole, but I'm not going to tell you what it is." And I time them, and then when we go to the third tee. I say, listen, we've got a tee time every eight minutes. So that means for a hole like this, a par three hole, which is predominantly, you've got eight minutes to play it. If you take longer, you'll cause a backup in the field. How long do you think you took to play it? And they're all like 10, 12, 13 minutes. And then I show them the stopwatch, the longest I've ever had, six and a half minutes. Wow. So people have never played before. So that's the, again, you're a good golfer now. You can play. Yep. Fantastic. It look. Uh- I can't help but take my hat off to you, Sandy. I've said it before, you know, you're bonkers in a good way, but you are bonkers in a good way. You're doing something wonderful for the game, uh, and that's important. And, and if you're being rewarded along the way, that is as it should be. And I just, uh, I've got my thinking cap on too about how one club golf would best be able to be spread. Because if it spreads and the right way, and we have a bunch of Sandy Jamisons mm-hmm. running one club around the place, golf is going to be better for it. It's much more the way forward and closing ranks and hurling rocks at Clover Moore because she wants to take nine holes of Moore Park away. Now, that's easy. It's tempting. Makes you feel better for a few minutes, but doesn't ultimately achieve anything. What you're doing achieves something. I'd like. I'd love to take Clover Moore out for a golf lesson. Oh, I'd love and to I, see I, it. I'd, I'd come and film. <laughs> that would be a spectator sport, I reckon, Sandy. It could be good fun. Well, see, I, I know nothing about her apart from what I see in socials because obviously it's a Sydney-based thing, but, mm-hmm. you know, I would love I would love nothing more because a lot of people are skeptical towards golf because of the barriers that we've built yeah, up yeah. not knowing you know I think it's a pretty simple thing yeah absolutely well mate it's been fantastic to chat to you it's always good to chat to you I chat to you occasionally on the phone I always come away enthused and and feeling better about things and the same has been true today I hope the listeners have felt the same but we really appreciate you taking some time mate it won't be the last time we have you on good good no, I enjoyed it and um, love to come back anytime you want me. Yeah, well, you might even get yourself a job as a co-host the way you're carrying on. And if this one doesn't improve, there'll be a job open. <laughs> he's, pointing, he's pointing at I'm me. I'm pointing very much at you, Adrian. But good to have you along as well. Thank you for bringing along the coffee. Uh, that was very kind of you. Uh, apologies from you, obviously, for being late, but... It's all right. Well, we, we got there in Thanks the end, for taking we? whatever little time you had left by the time you got here anyway. But good to chat to you, mate. Thank you. Thanks very much, Rod. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks, guys. Episode 34 of the Good Good Golf Podcast in the books. Hope you enjoyed it as uh, listening as much as we enjoyed talking, and we will, of course, be back to do it all again next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.